0: How's it going? So when I was uh, about 20, I was home for the summer uh, from college and... um, My summer job that somehow I had gotten was as an electronics salesman. I was selling like cameras and complicated stuff and thanks. I didn't know anything about what I was selling, but way worse than that, I don't like selling things at all. And that combination of factors led me to be a very bad electronic salesman. <laughs> and I lasted two weeks. I'd bought a couple suits and two weeks out. I quit. And I kind of promised myself, like, to stay out of the sales business. And uh, I bring that up now because um, I'm not trying to sell you anything. I'm not trying to sell you Buddhism or mindfulness it's definitely not our fantasy to have you all be little Belzers, <laughs> <laughs> or Scots or Brent Silvers. This is really not about what we care about, but about supporting you to Look deeply to see what what you care about. And what I would say is that to, to hear, to really hear what our heart is saying, to really be able to listen to what the heart says about what we care about, we have to pause and we have to get quiet. I love that the person who during the the shoes game said uh, something like uh, you know these shoes belong to somebody who's lost lost themselves amidst cultural pressure, yeah, who said that yeah right it's it's really it's kind of easy to take on the values and pressures and ideas of what we're supposed to be, what it's supposed to, what a good life is. It's easy to take that on from outside. But when we do that, we wind up living somebody else's life. We wind up fitting ourselves into a kind of map and a path that actually isn't ours. And it's a real, I would say tragedy to live someone else's dream. Saw so this quote from, uh, it was from, Think John Cabot's in, and um, he was quoting this uh, senior executive of a of a major company, Fortune 500 company. So, whoever this was, I don't know. Um, I don't know who it was. Whoever it was, presumably they had the life that at least American culture thinks is the good life a lot of success, money. But here's what that that executive said uh, that I found so uh, touching. They said, 10 years ago, I turned my face for a moment and it became my life. 10 years ago, I turned my face for a moment and it became my life. And I think it's possible for us to miss our life, to be so preoccupied in a way with where it's going, that we actually miss our life. And I don't know all the things that mindfulness is good for. Not sure. But I do have a deep confidence that it helps us avoid that fate. That sense of missing one's own life, of turning one's cheek and we wake up 10 years later or 20 years later and wonder whose life we're inhabiting. And so I wanted to talk about this theme and explore um, really explore the kinds of conversations that, that I, I wanted to be having when I was your age. I was longing so deeply for an honest conversation about what it's actually like to be human and to try to be happy and to succeed and to fail to feel clarity, to feel confusion. And uh, uh, the truth is, um, I never actually really had a place to have those conversations. And one of my aspirations in being here and being with you is that we can provide a place for you to have those honest conversations. You know that feeling when you have something you really need to say and you find somebody who actually can really deeply listen? And maybe they don't even say anything. Maybe you just talk, but they're like really, really steady and there for you. And you can see in their eyes and their face that they're open to what's happening inside of you, they're open, their heart is open to you. And even though they don't do anything, maybe, maybe they don't even say much. After you've spoken, you feel better, something is, there's some more ease. We know that because that's what a good friend or mentor does but what I would say is that mindfulness is like having a really honest conversation with ourselves that we actually come to listen to ourselves in that same wide open caring way And we've been practicing the whole time, listening, heart open to ourselves. And there's something that may be a little mysterious, almost, that starts to happen when we listen to ourselves that way. Sometimes what we hear is pain, but when we listen that way, when we're really with our life, something in the heart relaxes. Even if it's, there's pain, something in the heart feels like, uh, I'm coming home. Mindfulness over time, uh, it can feel like when we come back to the moment, when we come back to ourselves, whether we find pleasure or pain in this moment, the act of coming back to the present moment feels like returning to the arms of someone who loves us. So that uh, even even if what we're feeling is challenging, something in us relaxes. That sense of uh, mindfulness starts to to make uh, experience feel more and more safe. It feels more and more safe to Live our life, to feel our life. And so, the question of our practice here, what we're doing, is really asking a very simple question. It's a question that sounds so obvious as to be stupid. The question is, what's it like to be human? What is it really like to be human? And can we find a way to make peace with the human condition? So when we actually tune in, what's it like? The word that always comes to my mind is well, being human is intense. You know. Joanna talked about the six sense doors of the five senses and and the mind essentially, right? Well, we've got data coming into us at all times. We're kind of bombarded by sensory experience all the time. We can close our eyes, but we hear. We can plug our ears, but we feel. We can be in a sensory deprivation tank, but there's still thought, right? We sleep and there's dreams, and we're not in control of what we, what makes contact with our senses, right? You can arrange your room a certain way, right? But you can't arrange the, the world so that you control what you see and hear and feel, right? We have a nervous system that is super sensitive, and is always on the lookout for threats and opportunities. And it's said that uh, enlightenment, enlightenment is when at each sense door, there is peace. That we, s- that we see, and the sights are met with peace. We hear and the sounds are met with peace. The sensations, the emotions, the thoughts. At each door of the senses, there is peace. But uh, we do first have to acknowledge just how intense it is to be human. And uh, in reflecting back when I was your age, I was like scared of so much. Not that I'm free of fear now, but 18 the world was like super intimidating, and I didn't know who I was or what I would be. Uh, I didn't know if or how I would succeed or if I would succeed. And often to just ov- um, make it impossible to fail, I just wouldn't try. That was sort of my approach to managing that concern. And I was, um, you know, there were parts of me that felt like totally okay for friends, family, the public to see. And then parts of me, parts of my emotional life that felt like I had to keep locked down and was super private and could risk embarrassment or humiliation. If anybody knew, oh, I feel like this. This is my experience. And I can remember thinking, like, walking around, like, pretty conscious of the intensity of it, of just, like, being a teen, being alive. And I remember feeling like, why aren't we talking about this? You know? Like, more fucking math? (laughs) You know? like, Like, Okay, I get it. I like math, but like, why isn't anybody talking about this? Like, I'm freaking out here. (laughs) What's going on? You know. And I had this weird sense that like adults, even though even though I was around a lot of adults who were kind of like seemed like they they had sort of made it and been successful in ways. Uh, I just had this intuition that they weren't really happy either. I knew I was suffering, but I could sense like I'm I, you know even when I was really young wondering like do adults know about happiness either? I know I don't. I'm not saying I do. I'm just like 10, right? But they don't really seem like they know so much about happiness either. And so uh, the tendency, I think, is is to maybe, I don't know, kind of pretend like it's not intense. It's like we pretend like it's not a big deal to be human, but it's a really big deal. And we tend to personalize, as Joanna said, we tend to personalize the intensity. It's like, oh, it's intense because I'm doing it wrong. Like if I knew how to do it right, if I knew how to live right, it wouldn't be so intense. But uh, the intensity is not a commentary on you. You the intensity in other words is not your fault this is woven into the fabric of being human and so of course we we want you know what the heart longs for most deeply actually is peace and We try to kind of like find our way out of the intensity. But the way we usually do that is it's like it's intense. And then in order to make it less intense, we like pile on another intensity, you know? So it's like, okay, I have a bad day. And then I read like super intense newspaper stories for an hour on you know, the internet or something, right? And it's this attempt to like neutralize that first intensity, right? But we're really piling intensity on intensity. And it's possible to do this our whole life. We try to neutralize one intensity with another intensity. We try to neutralize some sensations with more sensations, but that creates a kind of hangover. And so what we're here to do actually is to open the heart in this really beautiful way to the intensity and do nothing. to not try to manipulate the intensity of being human. But the thing is, when we do this, when we focus in this simple way, as Marv said, something happens. The way we can think about it is it's like we start to digest some of the intensity. We start to digest some of our life. We start to touch our inner life with wisdom and love. All the memories that come up, the feelings, the stories of who we are, it's like all of these things. We start to to just bless that with wisdom and kindness. And I think this takes time, but as we practice over the months and years, um, it's like the past starts to feel more like it really is the past. It's like we digest our past. We digest our life. And the heart settles and deep way. When I was your age, I was thinking uh, a great deal about uh, love and relationship and sexuality. And uh, you know, here on this retreat, we haven't focused so much on that exclusively, um, explicitly. But it's, it's a, right, it's at the center of our concerns, the center of our, our hopes for our life, often, it's bound up in relationship and love, and sexual intimacy. And uh, it's important to know that this practice, the Dharma, it, it, it can. We deepen both in terms of our depth, meaning that the mind can get deeper and deeper. We can settle into the present moment in ways that we can't even yet imagine. our intimacy with the moment can, can become uh, uh, kind of earth-shaking. That's the depth, but we also grow in terms of breath, meaning that the teachings, mindfulness, the Dharma, the Buddhist teachings can actually touch more and more of our life, including love and sexuality and longing, And I would say that that our you know our love life um, can be a place of either unconsciousness and pain, or it can be actually a path of cultivating wisdom and compassion. It can be fully a part of our of our practice, it's worthy of our practice. And so, you know, we've taken a vow of celibacy here, but honestly, the reason we do that, um, one of the reasons we do that is so we actually can understand our sexuality more. If we're acting out our sexual desires it's actually harder to see our sexuality clearly. It's harder to see our desire. It's like a moving object. But here we make a commitment you know, not to engage in sexual behavior. And that's actually a precious opportunity to see sexuality more clearly, to honor it even more deeply Psychologist Adam Phillips uh, wrote, uh, At its best, relationship may be the wish to find someone to die with. At its worst, it's a cure for the terrors of aliveness. They are easily confused. That makes sense? No. Um, I'm going to skip over that, the explanation. I can maybe come back. Um, So love and intimacy, you know, is really uh, part of why it's such an uh, kind of intense territory, is it's it's at the intersection of so many deep, forces, right, of belonging and social connection and attachment and sexuality. It's all about, uh, there's the kind of evolutionary pressures, It often involves our body and how we feel about our body, how we feel about vulnerability and depending on others, of peer pressure and all of the cultural assumptions and biases about what our sexual life should be like. And all of this kind of longing and uh, clinging and tenderness, it all gets mixed up. And mindfulness actually is a beautiful way of starting to see more clearly into what's going on in our heart in this realm. I remember with my my first uh, girlfriend, um, I was... 17 and uh, I don't know, we'd been dating for some number of months and I wanted to uh, to tell her, you know I, f- I felt like I loved her and I wanted to tell her that but I remember it feeling so tender and vulnerable to say that <clears throat> that I couldn't I couldn't actually say it out loud. And so I remember like, you know how you like write on somebody's back or something? I traced it on her, you know, (laughs) I love you. And then it was like, (laughs) you know, and it's like, uh, yeah, even just thinking back on it, I can like feel the, vulnerability and the kind of exposure of it, you know, like to entrust your heart to another, that is a very uh, beautiful, powerful, scary gesture. So maybe at its most beautiful, I think about love as a union between uh, between eros and meta, mm-hmm. yeah. eros being the kind of attraction and uh, kind of sexual uh, longing and passion. Sometimes that just exists alone, but a more mature love, I think, is is eros and Metta, as dawn beautifully led us, like totally mixed together. So there's passion and tenderness, uh, attraction, and a deep kindness. But it's not so hard, not so not so easy, maybe, just to make that happen, right? And. Uh, I've found that that navigating the realm of love and relationship, sexuality, is like, uh, it requires so much flexibility of mind, so much awareness, so much wisdom, so much compassion, so much self-awareness, because it can be a zone where we feel very uh, opaque to ourselves. You know that word, opaque, like you can't see in. Like I can't see myself, I can't see my habits clearly. And love and lust get confused. Love and clinging gets confused. What we want and what our culture tells us is okay to want gets confused. And part of our meditation practice is actually clarifying, seeing more clearly, distilling the love, which is a very generous kind of feeling, distilling the love from the clinging. They get mixed together, they get mixed together. It's not the love that causes problems. It's the clinging that complicates everything. Clinging complicates everything. It makes everything complicated. And you can see how uh, many, many aspects of mindfulness might be relevant for trying to love in this aware way, trying to be in relationship, to be sexual in awareness. There's, uh, you can think of your own it, right? But there's, there's kindness, yeah. There's equanimity and acceptance, right? I had this friend who was much older than I, and she had had this beautiful relationship, marriage of like fifty years, and even after fifty years, she was like clearly like still in love. And uh I asked her, like, what what's been most important in like sustaining this loving thing? And uh and what she said was Was like a deep acceptance of the other. The all the precepts and you know the kind of spirit of non-harming is so relevant, right? It's like uh, there's so much harm that's done in the realm of sexuality, done to us, perhaps that we've done. And, uh, you know, the precepts that Joanna talked about are so, so on point here. Like, how do we love others, be sexual in ways that don't cause harm, and protect ourselves from harm? There's so much um, courage and vulnerability required, you know. Like the the reason why I couldn't say I love you uh, is because that's there was it felt like too much of a risk to say it out loud. You know? yeah. It's so felt so risky to depend on another, to open myself in that way to another, and. Here, we're also getting used to getting more and more comfortable with not knowing, which we don't like, right? We like to know, yeah? The mind likes to know. It's not that cool with uncertainty and not knowing and confusion, right? Like when confusion comes up, we're not like, oh yeah, that's cool. I'm just super confused today, right? (laughs) We're like, I'm going to get to the bottom of this. I'm going to understand. I'm not going to just rest in this not knowing. But in the realm of love, we cannot control another. We can't control their feelings for us, how long they love us, how, how they love us. And that if we don't have some equanimity, some acceptance, openness to uncertainty, we try to control, which is just another word for clinging. And things get complicated. And so, uh, So many ways that our practice actually is relevant here. Mm. Something that I I see as a uh, causes a lot of uh, can cause pain in relationships is that we're we're not always realistic about what relationships can and can't do for us. You know, my hope when I, was, when I was younger is that somehow relationship, like when I got the right one, it would complete something in my heart. It would end the sort of sense of seeking, yeah? But even the most beautiful, loving, enduring relationships can't be the end of our seeking. That part is an inside job. Relationships, I think, can do beautiful things. They can be so supportive for us, but they can't do everything for us. And if we set ourselves up to believe that they will. We can only be disappointed. And so part of what happens is that we actually become more and more realistic about what what love does, the ways it soothes us and supports us and nourishes us, and what part is still left for us to do, for us to cultivate in practices like the ones we're doing. What part, the parts of well being that we have to have on our own. The psychiatrist uh, said that, uh, that love is the revelation of the other person's freedom. Love is the revelation of the other person's freedom. Because we try to um, control uncertainty, in a certain way we can forget that our loved one, our partner, our boyfriend, our girlfriend, is their own person with their whole inner life and an inner world and thoughts and feelings and a subjectivity that includes us but is not all about us, right? They are their own person. And is it possible to both love them and honor their ultimate freedom as a separate being? So, usually we associate, you know, when I say, like, when we say, like, life is not certain. That's, that's sort of another way of talking about the first noble truth that Joanna mentioned. We don't know. Life is uncertain. That usually feels kind of, like, depressing, Right? Like I want to just lock in that partner and it's like we sign the contract, it's like a done deal, no more uncertainty, right? But uh, what I would say is that actually some of the uncertainty and not knowing is very close to a sense of, of aliveness. That the promise of forever actually deadens things. And that if we can start to actually open, like we don't know what's going to unfold, it becomes very alive. Each moment becomes. A, Uh, very precious. Let's just sit for a moment. As always with these talks, uh, please pick up and explore whatever feels relevant or alive to you. And leave the rest behind.